Father, we are here right now to praise you. For by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have set us free. You have set us free from sin and shame and guilt. And Father, I just thank you for the fact that you are the one that is the giver of life. Father, I pray today for grace, for healing, for hope. Lord, we know that we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. But Lord, we know that in Christ, we've received your righteousness. Praise you, Lord. And I just ask that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to work in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And welcome. It's great to see you this morning. Um, Children, have a great class. Be nice to your teachers. And I'm guessing you will learn a little bit about Jesus today. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you. You can find the 139th chapter of Psalms on page 489. We're going to be doing a little bit of a different message today, and I'll give you a little bit more understanding as to why here in just a minute. Pam and I became Christians on January 11th, 1998, after living lives that were completely devoid of anything to do with God, Christ, or anything to have to do with religion other than the religion of business. When we got saved that Sunday night, our lives radically changed. It was the next Sunday that we drove up to church in Dallas, Prestonwood. And we we get to the church, and out front, there's all these crosses that weren't there the week before. And there was a sign in front of these crosses that said, each cross represents a baby that is aborted in Dallas each week. And I remember thinking, oh boy, here we go. I'm not really wanting to go to church right now. Because up until that day, I was pro-choice. In fact, whose responsibility is it to choose? Isn't it a woman's right to choose? And I considered myself fiscally conservative but socially liberal. I was kind of a modern man. I didn't know that that day was... Sanctity of Life Sunday. I didn't even know what Sanctity of Life meant. We know that sanctity means holiness. It means sacredness. That Sunday, our pastor preached a message from Psalm 139. And it rocked my world. It rocked both of our worlds. It's a highly theological psalm about our God being an all-knowing, all-powerful, all Uh, present God. In fact, I want to read Psalm 139. We're going to come back to it later, but I want to read it because I want you to see the power of this psalm. It's, It's all about God. I mean, it's very vertical, but also it gets very personal. Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. And in in the first part, in the first verses, you see his omniscience. He's all-knowing. Then you see his omnipresence. He's, he's all-present. And then you see his, um, he's omnipotent, his power. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. 
You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. He is omniscient. He knows everything about us. There is nothing that he doesn't know about you. But not only is he omniscient, he's omnipresent. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. When you are afraid alone at night, he is with you. And then we see his omnipotence, his power. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. And then you see he just gives this view of his, of his understanding of God. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I wake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against me with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And then he says this in understanding the omniscience, the omnipresence, the omnipotence of God. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a passage that reminds us of the power of God. It was on that Sunday when I first heard this message that I had to make a decision. Am I going to live under the authority of God's word Or am I going to live over it? Am I going to pick and choose of what I agree with and then live under the rest? Am I going to live biblically correct or am I going to live politically correct? Am I going to obey God's word and submit to the spirit of the age or submit to the spirit of the age? I've since come to know some verses that are really important. Luke 6.46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this. In fact, he says it in verse 21 and following. He says, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Part of being a Christ follower is following Christ, following his word, submitting to him and his lordship. As Christ followers, we're called to live under the authority of God's word. And as we see in Acts, we're to obey man, I mean, obey God, not man. If we take our thinking and we place it above God's, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. That day, the Spirit of God radically changed both of our thinking. We became pro-life. So today I want to ask and answer some questions regarding life. My desire is not to be political, to be biblical. And we as believers in Jesus Christ, we should always desire to be biblical. Now, as many of you know that on June 24th, Roe versus Wade was struck down by the Supreme Court in the Dobbs versus Jackson case. It didn't outlaw abortion, but what it did is it put abortion back into the hands of the states, which is where it always should have been. Now, some have said that the Dobbs case outlawed abortion. It didn't. Some say that it took away their constitutional right to have an abortion. It's never been a constitutional right. It's not in the Constitution. Nowhere can you find it. So why talk about it today? Well, one, I felt that it's important that we address the case. But secondly, Pam and I heard about a small group in another church, not our church, a biblical church, a very sound church, in which right after the Dobbs case came out, the small group leaders and the majority of the people in the group, they were a young adult group, were very upset because they believed in pro-choice. And the one couple that told us about it were very bothered by it. And it was clear they didn't have an understanding of Scripture. Now, as I get into this message, one thing that's going to be clear to many of you is we're used to doing verse by verse through books of the Bible. Today, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to do a systematic study where we're going to take one subject matter, which has to do with life, and I'm going to do a systematic study. We're going to look at a lot of different verses. Now, it's going to be expositional versus impositional. We're not going to impose Scripture onto a thought. We're going to expose what the Scripture says. We always do that here. Now, um, we're going to look at a number of passages dealing with this, and it's going to take me a minute to get to them because I want to give you some background. So first of all, I want to ask the question and answer it, what is abortion? What is it? Abortion, according to Wayne Grudem, in his Christian Ethics and Systematic Study, says this, abortion is any action that intentionally causes the death and removal from the womb of an unborn child. It's an intentional act that causes the death and removal of the, uh, from the womb of an unborn child. Now, it's been said in different ways that the root of abortion is the same misguided thinking that resulted in the Holocaust, in slavery, and racism. It's a rejection of what the Bible teaches 
And what the Bible teaches, and I'm going to put this up on the screen, it's the big idea today. All human life is made in God's image and is precious to him. All human life. And those who truly believe that all people are made in God's image in the Imago Dei would, would, would not subject Jews to the gas chamber. They wouldn't enslave black people. And they wouldn't subject unborn babies to abortion. They would love people of all colors, shapes, sizes, ages. Why? Because they're image bearers of God and they are loved by God. That's abortion. Now what I want to do is, is give you some statistics. What are some statistics on abortion? Now, some of these statistics... I got from the Guttmacher Institute, which is a very pro-choice, pro-abortion organization, but also from the Choices Pregnancy Center. Here's the first statistic. Abortion is the leading cause of death in the United States. Think about that. Since Roe v. Wade, 63 million babies in the United States alone have been murdered, have been killed. That's 1.2 million a year on average. That's 23,000 per week. That's over 3,000 per day. It's been said that the the most dangerous place in the United States is in a mother's womb. Heartbreaking to even think about. Second statistic. One in four women, and thus one in four men, have been part of an abortion. In their lifetime. They will have an abortion in their lifetime. Third, 93% of all abortions in the United States have been performed on healthy moms with healthy babies. For perspective, less than one half of 1% have been caused by rape or incest. Here's a pretty stark statistic. 73% of those who have abortions self-identify as Christians. That's one of the reasons I'm talking about it today. 54% of parents that go to church actively are post-abortive. So if you look around this room, it would be pretty clear that some of you have been involved or have had an abortion. Before I move on, and we're going to get there later also, there is hope, there is grace, and there is healing at the foot of the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's our hope. It's the gospel. So those are some statistics. Well, what does science say about the humanity of unborn unborn babies? And and so more specifically, the question is asked, when does life begin? Because a lot of people say, well, that's, that's not a life. But that's only been said in the last 50 years. In fact, ultrasound technology has radically impacted a mother's view of her unborn child. Operation Ultrasound, which was a program developed by Focus on the Family, 
claims that 78% of the women who see an ultrasound of their baby reject having an abortion, meaning they go into a pregnancy center, they want to have an abortion, they see an ultrasound of their baby, and 78% say, I'm not doing it. Why? Because they see it's a child, a real person with fingers and toes, a nose and a heartbeat. Dr. Jerome Lejeune, a geneticist who discovered the chromosome composition that causes Down syndrome, said this. Each of us has a definite beginning, the moment of conception. Within the womb, a child develops rapidly. A month after conception, the heart has already been beating for a week. The arms, the legs, the head, and the brain have already begun to take shape. At two months, the child is virtually complete with hands, feet, head, internal organs, brain, and everything else in place. All she needs to do now is grow. Dr. Jaime Gordon, who's a professor of uh, medical genetics and a physician at Mayo, testified that, quote, the question of the beginning of life, when life begins, is no longer a question of medical, uh, excuse me, of theological or philosophical dispute. It's an established scientific fact at conception. Author Francis Beckwith explained that a baby's, that an unborn baby's genetic makeup is established at conception, determining to the great extent her own individual physical characteristics, meaning gender, eye color, bone structure, hair color, skin color, susceptibility to certain diseases, etc. John Bloom who's one of the founders of Desiring God, John Piper's organization, wrote this. We hear that abortion is fundamentally about a woman's right to reproductive freedom. Or abortion is a litmus test for judicial nominees or is, is symptomatic of what's wrong with the social discourse in America. He says, none of those things is what abortion really is. He says, abortion is the intentional killing of unborn children. The killing of children can be tolerated and even championed as a social good so long as we don't call it what it is. Call abortion an individual's right to privacy and you can write it into a legal code. Call abortion a compassionate, compassionate choice offered to a frightened girl to save her future, or to save a child from an undesirable quality of life, and you can swing popular opinion. Call abortion a liberation of women for their speci- for their, uh, from the social and economic oppression of male dominance, and passionate people will march on capitals chanting demands to preserve the human right of abortion on demand. But you won't hear the street marchers chant, quote, we will fight for the right to kill our children, end quote. Because calling abortion what it is might awaken uneasy consciences out of a euphemistic stupor to realize that millions of the most defenseless human beings on the planet are being denied the self-evident, creator-endowed human right to life. Definition, statistics, what people say. But most importantly, what does God say? about the unborn child? What is God's view of the unborn child? First, all life is precious to God. 
All life is precious to God. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God is the creator of life. You see that all throughout Scripture. John chapter 1. Nothing was made that was not made. Nothing was made that was made without him. He is the creator of life. And the fact that we are born in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, makes us precious to him. It has nothing to do with our financial status, with our beauty, our economic background, our physical or intellectual ability, our skin color, or any other characteristic. All life is precious to God. Secondly, unborn babies are unique human beings. It's amazing. When you study this, you realize there is a lot written about what takes place in the womb, in the Bible. There's a lot. In fact, we know that in Luke chapter 1, we get the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. And we know how the angel of the Lord comes to Mary and says that she will be with child. So because of the Holy Spirit, it's the virgin birth. And so what happens is after Mary becomes pregnant, she goes, to, she goes to Elizabeth, her cousin, who is well beyond having a child's age, but she, she's pregnant with John the Baptist. Let me, let's look at Luke chapter 1, verse 41. It says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, so Mary came, it says the baby leaped in a room. So the baby in Elizabeth's womb leapt. That's John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. This same baby that leapt for joy, John the Baptist, we hear this in Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Let me put that up. This is the angel saying to, to Zechariah, he says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Elizabeth's not pregnant yet, but at that point, the, the angel is explaining that she would have this child. He would be raised for a purpose, even from the mother's womb. How about Samson? In Judges chapter 13, Samson's mother was told by an angel of the Lord that she shouldn't eat or drink certain things since she was pregnant with a son, and that he would be what? A Nazarite of God from the womb. And you don't hear Samson's mother saying, well, it's my body, my choice. She submitted to God. Birth did not transform any of these children from a meaningless mass of cells to a human that is precious in God's eyes. In Galatians 1.15, Paul talks about that he had been set apart in his mother's womb. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, 
we have to understand that God is the creator of life. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 49, 1 and verse 5. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Unborn babies are unique human beings. But third, we also know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Go back to Psalm chapter 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It's this idea of just this, the intricate detail. Now, many of you guys don't know this, but I love to knit. I've been knitting all my life. I've never knit anything in my life. But my mom knit. I never really understood it. I never knew what got knitted. Never received anything that was knitted from her, thankfully, because then I'd have to wear it. But I remember the intricacy. And that's what the psalmist David is telling us about the intimacy, the, the, the intricacy of God's creative work. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You have made me perfectly with all of my imperfections. I am perfect in your eyes. In all of your imperfections, and y'all got a lot of them, God has made you perfectly. So often we say, God, why couldn't I be different? Because he made you the way he wanted you. And we should rejoice in how he has created us. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. The inside of my it's, it's not just my physical body, but it's my soul. He's made our soul. My frame was not hidden from you, my bones. When I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, even before I was in my mother's womb, you saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. Every one of them. God planned your beginning. The days that were formed for me, yet when as yet there was none of them. The you here is emphatic. He's saying you and no other. God is involved in the intimate details of your body and your soul. He brings us into existence exactly the way he wants to. And it includes our height, our hair, our lack of hair, the color of our eyes, whatever. All right. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Fourth. Unborn babies are unborn infants. Now that might sound like, what? The Greek word for unborn babies that we saw in Luke chapter 141 and 144 is the same word that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Let me put that up. This is Jesus. This is, this is, this is, uh, um, Luke speaking, he says, now they were bringing even infants to him. That word infants, it is the Greek word brephos. Now they were bringing even infants, brephos, to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children, it's a different word, paidion, 
He says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. When it says that the, the child leapt in Elizabeth's womb, it was a brephos, an infant within the womb, same as them bringing infants to Jesus. Unborn babies are unborn infants. We know that children are a heritage from the Lord. So, let me now move to why it's wrong to take the life of an unborn child. First, God commands against it. You don't have to go very far in Scripture in the Ten Commandments, which says, thou shalt not murder. The word for murder is used 43 different times for violent killing in the Old Testament. It's never used, a different word is always used for killing in war or killing in judicial execution. Two totally different words. In fact, there's a clear distinction between putting one to death and an illegal murder. Second, abortion destroys the work of God. It destroys the work of God. What's the work of God? Him knitting you in your mother's womb, in the image of God. Now, in Job, Job gives a reason for not treating his servant wrongly because it goes back to the fact that this servant was created in the womb by God. Let me put that up for you in Job chapter 31, 15. Do not... Did not he who made me in the womb make him, make my servant? And did not one fashion us in the womb? He understood. He wasn't going to treat his servant wrongly because of the fact of the way he was created. Third, third reason why it's wrong to take the life of the unborn. It's the shedding of innocent blood. It's the shedding of innocent blood. In fact, 20 different times in the Old Testament speaks of the shedding of innocent blood. Innocent blood includes the blood of children. In fact, Psalm 106, 38 says this. They poured out innocent blood. These are, these are those that were worshiping idols. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Fourth, we are called to protect the weak and the helpless. As believers in Jesus Christ, we're called to protect those that can't protect themselves. Look at Psalm 82, 3 and 4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And the last reason I could go on. God is the arbitrator of life, not man. God is the creator and sustainer of life. He's the arbitrator of life, not man. Job watched as his whole family was wiped away. And in Job chapter 1, verse 21, he said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He knew that birth and death are prerogatives of God, not him. Now, I had said that 54% of people in a church might be post-abortive. So it leaves us with a question which I think is really important to answer, and that is what is the hope for those who have either had an abortion or who have encouraged someone to have an abortion? I'm not going to answer that for you, but I'm going to ask my beautiful bride to come up here, Pam, and she's going to share with you some thoughts. Oops, you need a mic. Thank you. Um, The question is, what is the hope for those who have either had an abortion or have encouraged someone to have an abortion? And the answer is just one answer. Um, Their only hope is in the grace um, of the Lord (laughs) who offers any of us who have to confess and repent of this sin Um, the forgiveness that we need for this. Um, I know this firsthand because I've had two abortions. Unlikely pastor's wife, amen. (laughs) Um, I was not raised in a Christian home. I'd never heard of God or sin. Um, Certainly never Jesus Christ other than a swear word. I was born in the 50s. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, which... Later on, I came to realize was the age of the sexual revolution where premarital sex, pornography, contraceptives, and abortions really got their start. (laughs) They took off, and they were the cultural norms. Um, Truthfully, when I really sat and pondered how to speak about this today, I, I realized I really never was bothered that I had abortions, um... I really didn't think much about it until I became a Christian. And, of course, Bill just told you one week after we got saved was this message that I learned um, what I actually had done, that God gives life in the beginning, in the womb, and that I had chosen to literally terminate or kill two very innocent babies uh, for very selfish reasons. As you can imagine, that made me feel terrible. I knew I was a sinner. Uh, That one was a really hard one. Um, I'm supposed to give you hope. (laughs) And it's there. It's just taking a minute. I've never told anybody this many. I've told women, but not this many people. (laughs) So um, I really began to feel pretty terrible about what I had done. We lived in Dallas. We lived in the Bible Belt in a very large church, and I was really hesitant to tell anyone about my past for fear of being judged. Um, But the more I read scripture, I learned that my sinful past is just that. It's who I used to be. But it is not who I am in Christ. From that day forward, I was a new creation. God had made all the old things pass away, and all things were made new. Very, 
gracious day. There were many Bible passages that showed me my new identity in Christ, and in my daily Bible reading, I eventually came across a passage that really ministered the hope to me in a really big way. It was in Luke 7, 36 through 50, and I love this story. It's still one of my favorite passages. It's about this really religious, self-righteous Pharisee that holds this dinner, and um, he invited Jesus, and there was this woman of the city, and quite clearly, From the scripture, she was very well known as a sinner (laughs) because it says she was a sinful woman. They all knew it. She barges into this party. She's got this alabaster alabaster flask of of ointment. And she, um, we know that was very costly for her and probably her most prized possession. And with deep love and gratitude, she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. And she's just weeping over them and drying the the tears with her hair. And the Pharisee found this so disgusting. He was like, this is just terrible. From both sides, this woman is touching him. He's letting her. And if he honestly were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is. So Jesus tells him a little story. This is it. (laughs) I love this. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them would love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears, and I wiped them, and then wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From but the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And at the very end, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And what stood out to me so much is how Jesus received this woman. And most importantly, he actually, this religious guy sitting there with all of his perfection that he lived in, so we thought... He used this woman, who was the most sinful of all, to be the example to this man who was so self-righteous. This woman was a very sinful woman, just like me. But, you know, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. In amazing grace, he offered her forgiveness of all of her sins if she believed by faith in him. And she left that night having peace with God. Well, it was right after when I found this, I really sat down with the Lord. I knew 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But I'd never confessed that sin specifically to God. I did. I asked God to forgive me. He forgave me. He cleansed me from all unrighteousness. 
And I, too, felt peace with God about my past. And then the most amazing thing over time, I began to realize that God seemed to use a lot of my painful past to help others who also were struggling with things from their painful past. (laughs) And God began to surprisingly give me the opportunity in the ministry of comforting and reconciling others to himself the same way that he did it for me. So God gave me the hope that my past had a purpose, that he would actually use me for his glory in spite of it. The greatest hope I have is that I also believe that my two babies' souls are with Jesus. I'm so sorry. It is my belief that I will be reunited with them in heaven. When I go there, when I arrive, that's going to be a really special day. So when it asks, what is the hope? Oh, yeah, there is great hope. (laughs) When you choose to believe in Jesus, because by believing in him, all of my sin has been forgiven, including the sin of abortion and so so many others. And this hope is available for you, too. had no idea what you're getting when you came to church this morning, did you? I appreciate her openness and transparency. It's one of the reasons I love her. So I'm going to leave with this. What can we do? What can we, as the church, as those that have been redeemed by the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ? First of all, Pray. Pray. In fact, Second Chronicles 7.14, a passage many of you guys know. It says, if my people were called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That's called repentance. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's not only personal prayer, it's corporate prayer. We need to be a church that prays, and we need to pray like Pam did. You go to God, you confess your sins, you turn from your sins, you repent of it, and know that there's grace at the cross. Second, stand. Stand for those who can't stand for themselves. Isaiah 116 says this, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Proverbs 31, uh, King Lemuel, his mother told him this, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteous, defend the rights of the poor and needy. We need to help defend the rights of those that are in the mother's womb. Third, vote. Probably the first time you've ever heard me really say that. Vote for those who commit to protect life, that stand for life. So important for us as the church 
to stand for what God stands for. Fourth, partner. Partner with those who stand for life. Choices Pregnancy Center, great organization that we do change for change. You'll be hearing more about that in the future. ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, is a great organization. I got a lot of materials from them for this message. The Alliance Defending Freedom, CAP, uh, Center for Arizona Policy. Uh, there's another organization. It's called reasonforlife.org. Great resources. Partner. Five, adopt. Either adopt or foster. We have a lot of families in our church that have adopted or fostered. Not everyone, though, is called to foster and adopt, but we're all called to help. You may have somebody in your small group. It's a, a great opportunity to come alongside them. Help. Help those who've had unplanned pregnancies that may be going through it right now. Not look down our noses, but come alongside and help bear one another's burdens. Help them to find restoration, forgiveness, and grace. That'd be an awesome church. Seventh, teach. I think this is important. Pam reminded me of this. Teach your children about the beauty of sex within marriage. Some of your houses have fireplaces. A fireplace is a wonderful thing, especially when the fire is, is roaring. But if that fire gets outside of the fireplace, it can create all kinds of destruction. And we know that. Finally, share. Share the gospel. It is only the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ that really is going to change people's hearts. People could have yelled at me. They could have, they could have said whatever they wanted back in the, the, the 90s when I was definitely pro-choice, and it wouldn't have meant anything to me. But when I heard the gospel, the fact that my sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, that he took the wrath that I deserve, and that he was raised for my, uh, my justification, no matter how great my sins were, his grace was greater. Share. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. And in a minute, we're going to have some people up here that are willing to pray for you. And some of you may need prayer. And let this be a time where we're not allowing pride to hold us back. But we just want God's grace. Maybe you have a family member who's had an abortion. Maybe you know somebody. Maybe, maybe you're praying for somebody that's a neighbor that they would make the right decision. This is a great time to pray. Or maybe you just need somebody to pray for you for salvation. Father, I thank you for the fact that you are a God of grace and of mercy and of second chances. I pray, Lord, for those maybe that have struggled with, uh, that have been in this sin, that uh, you would just restore the years that the locusts have eaten, that, that like Pam feels the freedom of being in Christ and the fact that she's a new creation. I pray for others, Lord. We want to be a church of grace, but also we want to be a church of truth. So, Lord, uh, help us now just to worship you because you are a good God.